This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. The beauty of the aquarium hobby is that there is a niche for everyone, including those who love tiny tanks. My guest today, Rachel O'Leary, owner of Miss Jinxed, is well known for her collection of tiny freshwater fish and invertebrates, ideal occupants for now trendy nanotanks, aquaria that, like bonsai trees, can brighten up small spaces. Join us as we learn more about life on the nano side from the girl with the apple snail tattoo. We'll be right back after these messages. Molly, here's your dinner. Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your Cat Tree Tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Rachel O'Leary, aquarium fish and invertebrate breeder and owner of Miss Jinxed. And our topic today is nanotank animals. Well, Rachel, I'm glad I'm finally able to uh, speak with you on the phone. Thank you for having me. Now, I have some questions I always like to ask my guests, kind of getting a little bit more background on your entry into the aquarium hobby. What was your very first fish and aquarium setup? I guess that would have to be a community 55-gallon that my family had as a child. We just had basic zebra danios, tetras, some plecos, and things like that. As an adult, my very first tank was a 16-gallon bowfront that was purchased for me for my first Mother's Day. Nice. So what would you say got you first interest in the hobby? You know, was it anything beyond just kind of having a tank when you were younger? Not really. I think it was more of a whim. I was a veterinary technician for many years, and once I started having children, I realized, you know, I wanted some pets, but I didn't have a lot of time, being as my children are very close in age, so we decided to go with a fish tank. Well, that makes a lot of sense, and definitely a real common reason people get interested. I have to ask you about your tattoos. From the uh, article in uh, Amazonas Magazine, uh, they had a, you know, a great picture of you and kind of made some allusion to uh, some of them. How many are aquarium-related, and uh, which are those? I mean, I guess it depends on if you count my knuckle letters as an individual tattoo. I have fish pimp across my knuckles, which is just something that made me laugh. I have sharks. I have a mermaid fishing lure. I have an apple snail. I have ankles. I have um, several that would be nautical themed, not so much specific to fish keeping, though I do have plans to add more of those. 
<laughs> That's great. That's awesome. So give us a little bit about uh, history about your business, Miss Jinxed, and what made you decide to get into the business? Well, after I got my first African dwarf frogs for my Mother's Day present, I was looking for inhabitants that were peaceful enough to keep with them. They're, they're not particularly bright in aquarium habitats, but they're really fun to keep. So I ended up getting some apple snails. At that time, they were called Gregesii, but now they're labeled as diffusa, which are just your common mystery snail. And from doing some research on those online, I found that while they were readily available in the hobby, they were in pretty drab colors, and there were a lot of colors that could be available if one worked on line breeding. So I started line breeding those to get what I call the Crayola colors of them being the dominant, the, the purples, the pinks, and things like that. And from there, it went to what can I put with those snails that won't nip at them. So in about 2005, I got some cherry shrimp which had only been introduced into the hobby a couple of years before. And I had a lot of success breeding those, so I wanted to try more shrimp species. And I had attended at that point a couple of fish conventions where I met some individuals that were doing importing, and they helped me import different species of shrimp from overseas for me to work with, which quickly turned into a boom of livestock in my basement. I would sell off my extras, um, you know, let's not overcrowd the tanks, and it just it grew from there. I became more and more interested in different invertebrate species as well as little tiny fish. I was unable to find any of them in my local stores, so I started bringing them in myself. And that just grew into, you know, I started with, you know, four or five tanks in my basement and grew and grew. And eventually I realized, you know, this is a business, not necessarily a hobby anymore since it's consuming all of my extra time. So how long have you been... Uh, officially a business. I'm just curious about how many years have you been involved? I've formally been paying taxes under my business ID. This is my fourth year. I started bringing in livestock for, for my personal use maybe five or six years ago. You know, it all started about 10 and a half, 11 years ago. Okay, so when you were about 12, 13 years old. <laughs> so uh, can you give our listeners a, a kind of a walking tour of your setup in business? It's all done out of my home. We live in rural Pennsylvania, surrounded by farms, and it's a lovely little area. My home is relatively small, but if you walk into my house and go down into our basement, it has about the same square footage as our living space, and that is in its entirety my fish room. So when you walk down, I have three-tiered racks that my husband, he's a welder, fabricated for me. On the bottom level are 75-gallon tanks. On the middle level are 55-gallon tanks. On the top level are 20 longs. All the racks are stuck to more ease of access into them. And then I also have racks of tanks, also three to four high, of 10 gallons, 20 gallons, 30 gallons, and 29 gallon tanks. And then I have a small setup of dry rearing tanks, which are largely five gallon tanks. I also have a shipping station, which is an old lab counter, one of the same lab counters with my sink. I have it set up all with a central air pump to provide the filtration to the tank. And I have a centralized timer for all my lights to maximize efficiency. And then I have drain ports around the bottom of the room for when I siphon the tank so that those are directed to the sewer line to get rid of the wastewater. How often a week are you shipping fish out and or receiving fish or invertebrates? I ship four days a week, Monday through Thursday generally, and I receive fish almost every week as well, sometimes on Mondays and sometimes I drive to New York City on Sundays to pick up direct orders. 
So you're uh, obviously incredibly busy, especially with the family, I can tell. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about, I guess, nanotanks. You know, I know you um, obviously are pretty broad in, in sort of the, in your interest in the hobby, but, um, you know, because you do breed and import a lot of really small critters, as we talked about earlier, you, they, they're definitely ideal for nanotanks. So go ahead and tell us a little bit about nanotanks. Yeah, I think the majority of my customers and the hobbyists interested in what I'm doing do keep nanotanks. And that's sort of a broad term, depending on who you ask. Some people say it's 10 gallons or less. I like to think of it more as 20 gallon or less. It's basically just, you know, a small tank. And there's a lot of considerations to be made when setting up a small tank. Um, with less dilution, there's more fluctuations within the nitrogen cycle. So you have to be very aware of what's happening with your water and your tank is cycle. Uh, there's a huge range of, of creatures that are available now for nanotanks, especially with the launch of all the just pet trade kits you know, Snooball and all, all the different small tank kits that you can get at most fish stores. But I think, you know, in general, nano tanks are just what it sounds like, a small tank. Often they have internal filtration and light included in the kit. So would this be something a beginning hobbyist could set up and, uh, you know, do fairly well with? Uh, it's definitely something that's readily available. Um, I would always encourage anyone who's getting ready to set up any sort of tank or get any sort of pet to do a lot of research. It's, it's really important to make sure that you're aware of the chemistry behind fish tanks uh, in order to have success. You know, as I mentioned, with little tanks, there's a lot of, there's, there's less dilution, there's more fluctuation in parameters. I, I definitely think it can be an easily successful thing for just about anyone. You just have to do your research first and make sure you're prepared to do water changes during the initial setup. Yeah, that's definitely great advice. I think uh, it is pretty common for folks to just see something they like and, and buy it and, and not really think about everything that's involved with keeping fish or invertebrates. And as you mentioned, water quality is really very critical. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the fish first, and then we'll get to um, invertebrates as well. Um, what fish species would you recommend for a, a nanotank setup? Well, there's a cornucopia of species available. I think some of the most popular are things like chili rasboras or the Boraris brigatae, little tiny redfish, well under one inch, very vibrant, not particularly shy, and just, you know, really, really relatively easy to keep. Dwarf Coriodorus are also very popular. They have a lot of great attitudes, and there are several species available in the hobby. Hebrosis is probably my favorite. Um, there's many small danios available, including the Celestial Pearl Danio, which is probably one of the most popular in the hobby. There are many small roaches that do really well. You know, I could go on for hours about just the different little fish that are available within the hobby now, mainly because of uh, people like myself who just are really passionate about their behavior. I guess maybe as a, a caveat then, uh, folks really need to kind of know the fish that they're getting and, and uh, how big they're going to get. Because, you know, I think some people may yeah, not... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to tell in a store. Yeah. I mean, a lot yeah. of times when stores or even people like myself get in fish, they're young. And you, you have to do a bit of research first to know, you know, is this fish mostly grown? Is this fish, you know, a juvenile? I mean, that's, but that's with any fish tank. Yeah, exactly. 
So, you know, the Amazonas Magazine did a really nice job of talking about inverts and uh, all your work and interest in invertebrates as well. And I know personally, speaking for myself, I, you know, I'm familiar with some of them. I'm really not familiar with a lot of the, I guess, newer, for me anyway, newer uh, small inverts, and, and including a lot of the ones that you are uh, either importing and or breeding. Uh, so let, let's talk a little bit about those. You mentioned a little bit about some of the snails. Can you tell us a little bit more about your favorite freshwater snails? Wow, it's hard to pick a favorite. I think what I, I keep the most diversity of is neurite snails, and that's mainly because they're small, they don't reproduce in fresh water, they're very efficient algae eaters, and there is a huge range of colors and patterns available in the hobby. Uh, my favorite is a Scythian corona, which is also called the bumblebee neurite. It's a small snail getting about maybe dime diameter that has elongated horns on its shell. And they're a black and yellow stripe. They're really lovely. They're zebra murite, which are slightly larger, getting to about you know, nickel diameter, which are a brown base with black striping. But there's just a ton of variety of the murite snails. And I think a lot of people have misconceptions about snails because of their propensity or the rumors that they will eat plants or reproduce in rapid fashion. But these guys definitely don't do that. They're completely algae-eating and do not reproduce in fresh water. Are the nearites relatively easy to keep? Yes, they are. I mean, they're, they're, I mean, there's dozens and dozens and dozens of species. There's, you know, five or six in the hobby relatively regularly that are well-suited for aquaria. Uh, there are species that, you know, are more prone to leaving the tank, but they're, I mean, they're relatively hardy. I would suggest that, you know, obviously if you're going to get an algae-eating species, you should have a tank that's relatively mature so that they have something to eat. Makes sense. I have a lot more questions for you, Rachel, but I think we're going to have to take a short break. We'll continue our discussion with Rachel O'Leary of Miss Jinx after these messages from our sponsors. designerpetsweaters.com hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat beautiful couture patterns for your pets including custom-knitted formal wear casual wear yachting and even sports themed many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats top hats and a lot of sparkle each sweater includes leg loops front paw sleeves and leash opening visit designerpetsweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today your pets will stay warm for the winter and be runway ready large or small we fit them all designerpetsweaters.com let's talk pets on petliferadio.com Continuing our conversation with my guest, Rachel O'Leary of Miss Jinx. So, Rachel, you were telling us a little bit about some of the snails. And again, you mentioned you had too many favorites to really pick any in particular, but you talked about a few of them. Are you breeding any of these? Nearite snails don't breed in captivity. They come from estuaries where, you know, they lay their eggs in fresh water, they hatch into larvae, they're swept out through varying levels of salinity and migrate back. So they're not breedable in captivity. I, I do work with apple snails and a species of snail called Gersha Pagadula, which is also called the pagoda snail. Um, I've worked with trapdoor snails, which are a wide-bearing species, and I've also worked with a lot of what are commonly called rabbit snails 
with high low snails and followessi. And do you find those fairly easy to work with, or are you uh, kind of experimenting with them? Um, some are easier than others. Apple snails are pretty uh, pretty easy to breed. They sort of do things themselves. Uh, some of the other species are a bit more challenging for a variety of reasons. They like, for instance, the Tylamelania snails like substantially warmer water. They're also prone to coming in with copious amounts of leeches, which are not the most fun thing to deal with. And they're slow breeding. I'm also working, you know, breeding tons of assassin snails, which are the snail-eating snails, and are very popular within the hobby. And those are very easy as well. Okay. Now, you also mentioned, and you have freshwater shrimp. Can you tell us a little bit yeah. about these and uh, what their requirements are? Uh, there are dozens of species of freshwater shrimp available or becoming available in the hobby, and most notably are the cherry shrimp, which are neocaridina. There are various color forms of those, red, yellow, white, blue, black, brown, you know, and they're very, for the most part, easy to keep. They can take a wide range of temperatures all the way down to about 60 and all the way up to about 84 and quite a variety of hardnesses. I think that they are the best beginner shrimp, no matter which color form you choose because of that. Some of the other species that I work with are a bit more demanding. For instance, uh, crystal red shrimp are, have been an extremely popular shrimp in the hobby, but they're, they're more particular with their requirements, preferring cooler, softer water. Uh, I think what's most important with shrimp, if you're going to choose to keep them, is to know about your own water and what you can provide and, and what they need. For instance, uh, the Balti complex from India and Malaysia are more flexible than a lot of the Asian species, but there's basically a color, shape, and hardness requirement for every individual with how, how vastly fast this hobby is moving forward. So I guess a question I forgot to ask you earlier, starting, I guess, with the, the smaller fish as well as the snails and the shrimp, what is life expectancy for these guys, what would you say, on average? Um, it really depends on species. The nearite snails, you know, I've had some for three or four years. I'd say more typical is probably 18 to 24 months. Shrimp, probably, again, 18 to 24 months, but they breed very readily, uh, hitting sexual maturity at a relatively young age. Uh, each female can carry 30 young at a time and carry young every other month or so, so it's very easy, especially with shrimp, to perpetuate your colony. There are some species available that do not breed in freshwater, for instance, the Amano shrimp, which is vastly popular. And again, I've had some of those for two and a half, three years. A lot of it depends on, on your water, water quality and husbandry. Okay. Uh, and, and small how, fish, small yeah. fish, you know, you know, it, it really, again, depends on what type, several years at least. Okay. Now, do you have any um, new fish or invert breeding projects in the works? I know you're, uh, with your interest, you're probably always working on something different. Yeah, I always have new projects in the works. Right now, for fish, uh, I think my favorite is probably the Centro Mopus reticulatus, which is a little purple driftwood catfish from Peru. Well, the, the collection point for the ones I have is Peru, and they're just over an inch long, little tiny catfish that use internal fertilization, but then lay large egg masses. So right now I'm working on conditioning them to breed. I have a, a bunch of um, dwarf cichlids from Central and Western Africa that I'm working with. I have several different Corydoras species that I'm working with, some live bearers. For invertebrates, you know, I have the newest to my fish room that I'm breeding are the tangerine tigers. 
but I have, you know, nine or ten other species of, of shrimp that I'm working with right now. And for snails, I've, you know, just been perpetuating my work with the mystery snails and some of the tilers, as well as some of the larger live-bearing snails. You basically live down in your uh, in your basement. Yeah, I'm, I get up with my kids. <laughs> I get them on the bus. I'm in the fish room until I take my boxes in around 2.30, and then I do my mom thing, and then I'm back in the fish room every day. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, but it's, I'm sure it's relaxing, even though it's uh, probably a, a lot of work. Oh, yeah. That's why I have the armchair down there. <laughs> I heard you also spent some time visiting. I know you go to a lot of aquarium societies and a lot of different meetings, and but I heard you spent some time visiting an aquarium society in Bermuda. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and what you uh, taught and learned? I found that really fascinating. I mean, this is an island where they have no naturally occurring freshwater, and they have a freshwater aquarium club that is extremely energized and active within the hobby. I mean, they do a lot of work with the conservation programs through the Capital Cichlid Association, and they also do a lot of conservation for the native saltwater species in their area. I went there to introduce freshwater invertebrates in the hobby to the area. They've never previously been imported into Bermuda. So when I went, I had to fill out, you know, vet certificates and import permits. And I brought a variety of small fish and shrimp to the island. An extremely interesting group. They had, I went there to judge their home show, which is when we went from house to house of the members to, for me to judge their planted tanks. And it's extremely difficult for them to get aquarium plants into Bermuda because they're all banned with it being a tropical area. So every person was basically making their aquascape from the same plants that everyone else had. And the diversity and the level of skill that was exhibited was just amazing. Very, very interesting group. Now, you mentioned, you know, the freshwater limitation. So uh, how are they getting their freshwater or how do they manage that? Uh, it's all from collected rainfall. Okay. They have, I guess, I don't remember exactly what they're called, but basically they have specialized roofs that the rainwater runs down and then it's collected into cisterns underneath their home. So all so, of the water that they use comes from rainfall. So they have to even be much more uh, up on their water quality since they don't have the luxury of probably doing tons well, and tons of water. They have to be very, very conservative with their water yes. use. I mean, I was yeah. blown away at what they were able to accomplish with natural resources being limited. Yeah, that's no, that's awesome. So in addition to that, I heard you do a lot of work with providing aquariums for classrooms. Can you... Tell us a little bit about this. Yeah, I try to donate monthly to either classrooms or outreach programs or nursing homes. Basically, anyone who wants to set up a tank in a nonprofit sort of setup. Um, I've donated to a lot of schools around the country. And I just, I think it's really important for kids to be fostered and their passion to be fostered and for them to be educated about, you know, what works with what and why and, and how this works because the aquarium hobby is extremely huge. I don't think most people realize how vast it is. And if you start when they're young and teach them about water changes and healthy creatures and schooling creatures and just basic information, it leads to success later and it ensures the future of this hobby. No, that's, that's uh, excellent points. And I think also as well, it kind of allows them to appreciate you know nature and get a little bit more close to uh, kind of the earth and, and water. I think a lot of Kids are getting away from that with all the uh, electronics and, and video games, you know. <laughs> I also donate to high school programs. You know, I keep a, a self-cleaning crayfish here, which is currently, you know, banned in some states because they're not quite sure 
what its uh, threshold for survival is in, in native waters. But, you know, just learning about breeding, breeding different species can be invaluable to a lot of students as well, learning their life cycle. In my daughter's classroom, they raise crayfish. Oh, that's great. So last but not least, I hear you do have, uh, even though you really like the little guys, you have a lot of big guys as well. You've got some tank busters. Can you uh, give us a little uh, rundown on what some of your tank buster fish are? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I guess I just like extremes. I like little tiny things or really big things. And I, I've worked for Monster Fish Keepers for many years now, and I blame that for my interest in giant fish. I have, you know, I have some typical bigger fish. I have a wild Oscar named Captain Cranky Pants, the only fish I have with a name. He's <laughs> um, not a very nice guy. And then my real big guys are my polypsis. I have three big polys that are pushing two feet each and are not full grown. And then I have gar as well, uh, a tropical and a Cuban gar. And the, the tropical gar is about three grown at two feet. He's bigger around than my upper arm. They're huge, and I love them. They're my babies. Can you tell people a little bit about polypterus? Some folks are, may not be familiar with the polypterus. Are there an African fish? Uh, primitive fish been around, you know, for a long time. They can breathe both uh, surface air and underwater. I think they're mainly known as sort of ambush predators. They tend to hide out in the shallows along the sides of, of rivers, and they eat fish in the wild. There are two main families of them, the upper jaw and the lower jaw. Upper jaw being the smaller set and lower jaw being the larger. And they're, they're sort of eel-like in appearance, but very, very primitive-looking. Uh, interestingly enough, I believe that body armor is originally fashioned on a design based on their skin. They're very tough creatures. I mean, there's a reason they survive as long as they have. Uh, that's interesting. I didn't know about the uh, the, the armor. Now, um, I'm guessing that you probably can't fit more than one or two of those in a nano tank, probably, right? <laughs> I do them out in small tanks, but, you know, <laughs> this size, they, right now, mine are in a 230-gallon, and I plan to build them a 600-gallon for the rest of their life. They're very long living, and I, uh, I've had them seven years so far. I hope to have them for a much longer time. That's great. Well, you have given me a lot of really great things to think about, and, and uh, I know you've got so much more information, and unfortunately, we're, we're getting short on time. I'm, hopefully, I'll uh, have you again if you have the time, and we can talk a little bit more. Do you have any final words of wisdom for our listeners? I think that what most people need to do is just do a little bit of homework. I mean, we're so fortunate that we have this vast internet at our fingertips. You know, do your homework, find out what you're interested in, find out what their needs are, and just take the time to set things up properly. Well, thank you very much again, Rachel. I really appreciate all the time that you've spent with us. I'd also like to thank okay. our producer, Mark Winter, for making the show possible. And if folks are interested, Rachel, they can kind of go to your website, which we'll have uh, available on your Aquarium Mania page. Absolutely. I'm also available on a multitude of hobbyist forums. I work for the Monster Aquaria Network, which is monsterfishkeepers.com and aquariaessential.com. Um, I can also be found, I'm on the board of my local cichlid club, which is Capital Cichlid, and I'm also very active on the planettank.net. Okay, well, we'll make sure to put all those websites as well on your, uh, on your page so folks can, uh, can just kind of click on them 
Thanks again for joining us, and I encourage all of you to visit my Aquarimania blog on Pet Life Radio. Rachel's given me some pictures I'm going to try to shoot up in the next couple days. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy at petliferadio.com. That's D-R-R-O-Y at petliferadio.com. If you're ever in Florida, please be sure to visit the Aquarium Mania exhibit at the Florida Aquarium in Tampa, one of my favorite aquariums. And also be sure to check out my new book, An Animal Life, a novel written by me and three close friends and inspired by our time in veterinary school. Go to animallife.com. Until next time, please visit your local aquarium stores, keep your tanks clean and your fish healthy, and consider nanotanks and keeping some of the smaller denizens of the aquarium hobby. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com. <laughs>